I have four kids, and I learned a lesson, my wife and I both, well, let me, let me just make this, I, I've learned many lessons, <laughs> uh, through them all and continue to, and it's amazing how, you know, just like marriage, parenting, God uses for our sanctification and our discipleship, right? Um, and one of the things that I learned th- through my third child, Pierce, who's 10 in fifth grade and who scored two big three-pointers in a basketball game yesterday, he's just like a stud. And so, yeah, he's my stud. So he, um, when he was little, like around two or three, I, I, we started noticing this about him. We've, we've heard people say things like, oh, the third child right, or the third one, and we didn't quite know what all all that meant. Well, one thing we learned real quick what the third would do is he would do everything on his own, like he would think he could do anything, and so here's one way that we saw it is, you know, my older two, when when they were young, if if they wanted a cup up from the cupboard or something or a plate or something like that, they would say, hey, listen, uh, mom, dad, can you help us get that or something like that? Well, here's what Pierce would do. Pierce would just climb up on the cabinet, right, On, on on the uh, uh, counter. He would climb up on the counter, stand up, and, and, and get it out, right? And, and that's what he would, he would not ask for help. And he would do this in, in many different things. He's already heard this this morning, so he's, I, he's cool. So he knows this was coming. So, but he would do that. So I, I remember one day grabbing him and saying, listen, you have to let us help you. You have to let us help you. You cannot do everything on your own. Now, some of you might be thinking out there, why did you say that, right? And in our world, I mean, one of the things that's celebrated is independence. Be, be independent. And you want your kids to have independence. You betcha, right? You want them to do things on their own. But one of the things that's important that, that we started learning is that they also need to learn about dependence as well. And here's why. It's because ultimately you, you want your children to be dependent on God. You want them to be dependent on God. So I think you have to teach them what dependence is. And so today in, in our text, that's one of the things that, that God wants to press in, I think, to us, is that we are dependent on him. We cannot live our life independent of him. We are dependent on him. And it's so hard in our world today. And it can be easy at times just to coast through life like we don't need him. We don't need his help. But the text today shows us we need him. We need him. Every hour of the day, day and night, we need him. And so to do this, I want us to look at Luke 18, We'll look at the text that Scott read for us today, and I think what we're going to see raised to the surface here is these two gifts that, that God gives. He gives the gift of salvation, they'll be in the latter part, and he gives this great gift of prayer, and they all involve depending on God, depending on him. So I pray, like Proverbs 3, 5 tells us, that, that we would have dependent hearts, that we would trust in the Lord and not lean on our own understanding, what we can do, but we would have dependent hearts this morning. And so look at verse 1 of 
chapter 18. I love what Luke's going to do. He's going to give us two parables, and he's going to set up um, each parable with their purpose. And so he, there's, it's easy for us this morning, right? We're like, okay, we know what he wants us to get. So look at verse one. He was telling them, and who is them? We'll find out in a second. A parable to show that at all times they, so them and they, they're the same people, that they ought to pray and not to lose heart. If you go back to chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And so he's telling this parable specifically to them. And that they are not to, or that they are, uh, should pray at all times and they're to not lose heart. And so real simply, what, what are disciples to do? They're to pray at all times. And this is vital. This is vital to what? To not losing heart. This is vital to our perseverance. And so what he's going to tell his disciples is, is prayer is central. It's key. It's vital to remaining faithful, to finishing the race that God has for us. Prayer is central to that. And so he's going to show them how to have this long dependence, this long dependence so that they finish well. So to show this, he's going to tell a story. Jesus is a parable. All right, Jesus would tell parables. They were stories that those in that time and place and context and culture, uh, they would understand. They would get the story because it was about their time. Um, but it was shared to tell them something about the kingdom of God, something about God and something about them. And so God is, or Jesus is going to do that this morning again. So look at verse 2 through 5. Look at the story. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God, I did not respect man. There was a widow in that city as well, and she kept coming to him, saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while I was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And Jesus is a great storyteller, right? That's a great one. We have two characters. We have this unrighteous judge, and what do we know about him? He did not fear God. He did not respect man. We have that said about him, but he also says that to himself about himself. And so his pride is deep. He he doesn't care, right, if someone's suffering. He doesn't care if someone is ripping you off. Why? Because he thought he had no authority over himself. He was arrogant. He didn't like people. So it's a pretty bad resume for a judge. He's very prideful. And then you have this, this widow. What do we know about the widow? She's innocent. She's probably fearful. She's powerless in this situation. She's oppressed. But she's very persistent. This widow's very persistent. She was asking for justice to be done, for things to be made right. The issue the widow was facing could have been a couple of things. She could have had a debt that was owed to her that another person wasn't paying, and so she was looking to get a hearing for that. Um, It could also be the fact that there's an inheritance that is owed to her that maybe was her husband's that is due to her that was being withheld as well. We don't know the exact reason but whatever the case is she was looking to get a hearing and for things to be made right in her case 
The Bible tells us in Isaiah 1.17, and it was also a Jewish tradition, that judges would defend the orphan. They would plead for the widow. That was a Jewish tradition, yet this judge did not do that. He ignored the scripture to defend the orphan and care for the widow in this case. So this woman's legal rights are being ignored. She was uh, kept coming to the judge, though. And what does it say? He was unwilling to help her. But here's one thing she recognizes. Even though she's powerless, she recognizes, even though this judge is unrighteous, that this judge has the power. He has the power. He has the power to make things right. Probably what the judge was looking for, though, was a bribe. (laughs) If he's unrighteous, doesn't have an authority over him, and doesn't care about other people, he was probably in it to gain something, and this widow had nothing. He was probably also maybe leaning toward her opponent or whoever she was bringing the case against because maybe he could or she could bring a bribe or maybe they were influential. Whatever the case was, he wasn't helping her. But listen to what happens. Her persistence is going to pay off because at the verse 5, what does it say? She kept bothering him. She wore him out. I love that phrase, wore him out, because here what, here's what it, it, the idea of that word is. It's the idea of a prize boxer, and he's wearing his opponent out. Literally, it means to blacken the face of another. Isn't that cool, right? Some of you guys that saw the Houston Rockets and LA Lakers last night, Rondo, CP3, and Ingram going, anyone? No? Okay. All right. That's what it means, though, right? But it's, it's a prize boxer just wearing the other guy out. And that's what this lady's doing. It, it also means giving him a headache. He's had enough. She's irritating me. But it ends up for her good. Her case gets heard, heard, excuse me, and it's one of those days, right? Um, and it's settled in her favor. So Jesus is going to take this story. He's going to apply it to us. What does this mean for us? So look at verse six through eight. The Lord said, hear what the righteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect? Who are the elect? Elect is a term used throughout scripture. We see it places like Ephesians as well. Paul will talk about it. Uh, Election, the elect. Those are God's chosen. Those he has chosen to have salvation. Okay, Um, Those who have trusted in Christ have been chosen of God for salvation. Uh, We also see it in other places like Romans as well that talks about God's elect. And so here he's talking about the children of God, those who belong to God that he has has chosen for salvation. It says to him that um, will he not bring about justice for them who cry to him day and night and will he delay long over them? I tell you, Jesus does, that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth. And so Jesus says, if the unrighteous judge, after much persistence by the widow, is willing to do what is just and right for her, how much more will God, who is just, who is good, who cares for us, how much more will he do what is right for his elect, for his children, for his chosen? How much more will he do what is right and just for 
us. And so he calls us in light of that to do what? To be persistent in praying, to cry out to him day and night, that you and I would be just like this widow, that we would be persistent to our loving judge, to our caring judge. This is what we are to do. But what's interesting in this text, if you look at verse 7, this question that, that is asked here, he says at the end of it, we're to cry to him day and night, and then he says, will he delay long over them? That, that's not a, an easy phrase there. Okay? I grappled with this a, a little bit last night, trying to understand, okay, what is Jesus communicating here? And so he, he seems to be speaking about God. And it seems to be, he wants us to know that God is patient. That God is a patient God. Um, it seems also that he's talking about God's willingness toward us, his elect, to put his anger far away. Because of what? Because of our sin. Now think about this. Those who are saved, if you're in here today and you know Jesus, your Lord and Savior, okay, God has put his anger far away. He has willingly done that. He's been patient with us. And even though we're, we're saved, we, we still sin. But, but he still puts our, his anger toward us far away. And so how does that relate to what he's saying here? Well, we're called to be persistent in praying. And, and we can come to him because he has been patient with us. And he willingly puts his anger away and says, come, come to my throne. Come to the throne of grace. Come and, and pray, and you don't have to be afraid. Willingly come. Now, Jesus is speaking here, and the cross hasn't happened yet, but, but we're on the other side of the cross, and so we know that Jesus has paid the price for our sin so that we can be forgiven and those who have salvation, that we can also approach God at any time, anywhere, day and night. And he is a loving father who listens and who wants to hear our request and who cares about our request, who wants us to come to him when we are fearful, when we don't know what to do, when we are helpless. And guess what? He is there, not like this unrighteous judge unwilling to hear, but he wants to hear. And he wants us to come and be persistent day and night. And so he's open 24-7 saying, come. Come and share with me. And so he's patient. He's willingly moved aside his anger toward us. And that's because of Jesus. And look at verse 8. It says, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them, the elect, quickly. First, I think what we see here is that, that God will bring about justice. He will bring about righteousness for his children now and in the future. But we know this. On this side of eternity, we will not see every wrong be made right. We won't. But there will be a day when he returns, when the Son of Man, when Jesus comes again, where every wrong will be made right. Every tear will be wiped away for his children. And then he asked this question, and this is really where it, it, I think it really asks us. It really is toward us, right? His audience this morning. And for me, when Jesus, the Son of Man, returns, and we've seen that in, in chapters before him talking about himself as the Son of Man and that he's going to come again. We saw that last week as well. 
when the Son of Man comes, he asks this question, will he find faith on the earth? Really that question is this, will the Son of Man find this kind of faith on the earth? Will he find this kind of dependence on God? Will he find persistent prayer where we're knocking on the door, on God's door, and we're just praying day and night, bringing our needs to him, all types of needs? Will he find that? Will he find that? Will he find those who have trusted in God's salvation through Jesus alone, will he find that kind of faith? Does he find that kind of faith in us? And so we see this great gift of prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is simply you and I talking to God. It's you and I talking to God. We don't have to have some rote prayer. We don't have to, you know, quote what we would call the Lord's Prayer. I mean, it's, it's not that. It, it's, it's, man, just being you. And just like you would talk you know, to somebody else, you, you talk to God. You talk to God of the universe, and you tell him, hey, listen, here's my stuff. I mean, he knows, but he wants you to talk with him. And what's amazing about it is he's given us his Bible, his word, his scripture, that he talks to us through that. So here's his two-way communication, but we can't forget prayer. He wants to hear from us. We're to pray. We're to pray. Um, Sometimes we don't pray. One of the number one reasons we don't pray is we, we think it don't, doesn't work or we don't need it. We don't need it. But we are to model after this widow to persistently go to our loving Father because guess what? He has power. He has power to do things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. See, the widow went to this unrighteous judge even though he was a jerk, right? And, and he, she asked for justice, because why? She knew he had power to do for her what she could not do for herself. We have a loving God who has power, who has power. And so persistently pray. As I was studying this week, I, I, it was Tuesday or Wednesday, I was here and I was looking over this text and I got a message that somebody had called and I recognized the name, so I called them and it was somebody from a church that I was at three years ago, or three years ago, three churches ago, it was actually over 20 years ago, and so I, I started there when I was 20, and so I knew this guy from even when I was growing up, and so this guy called, and he, he was asking me a question, but then he, when he was done with the question, he asked me this, he said, hey, listen, I've got an old prayer list here that has some prayer requests from you over 20 years ago, and he says, I want to ask you, how is this going? How is this relationship going with with your dad. And I thought, oh my word. I said, have you been praying over these 20 something years? And he says, yes sir. He said, how is this going? And I, and I got to share, I was like, hey, my, my dad and I um, started rebuilding our relationship you know, seven years ago and, and, here's, and he's like, oh wow. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, oh wow, you've been praying for that, you know, all that time. And he said this, he said, hey, listen, I, I want to tell you something encouraging, because I started telling him, you won't believe what I'm reading and what I'm preaching on this week, and you just called right in the middle of it. And he said, he goes, I've been praying for my dad for 37 years, he said, 37 years, that he would come to faith. And he said, just recently, at 84, he walked into the kitchen one day, 
and looked at his wife and said, listen, I just trusted in Jesus in our bedroom and shared that with him. And he said, I am seeing God do amazing things. And he says, 37 years of praying, 37 years of praying. So the story of the widow, it's that. It's persistent praying. It's persistent praying. Because here's, here's what Jesus is trying to do. Remember the parable, what it's about? that we, are ought, we ought to pray always and not lose heart. And, and so here's the little equation here in this parable is that persistent prayer plus God's patience, okay, we see that in the text, equals perseverance. He has called you and I to persistently pray. And what does God do? God is, is patient, loving toward us because what Jesus has done for us, right? And when we consistently, persistently go to our Father, believing he has the power to do what we cannot do, what God's gonna do is he's gonna cause us to persevere, not to lose heart, not to lose heart. And so what's the key to persevering? Persistent prayer, persistent prayer. It's dependence. It's what dependence looks like. And he's what he's called the church to. So look at verse 9 because this is, we're going to see the opposite. Look at verse 9. He says in this story, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And so he does the same thing here. He's going to tell another story. And then he says, hey, before I tell you this story, I want to tell you what I'm going to tell you about. And so he's talking to those who believe that they are righteous on their own. They got it all figured out. And those who don't care for others. And so what you have here is self-reliance and snobbery. Okay? And so he's speaking to those. Now who might those be? Probably the Pharisees. And they're probably hanging around as well. But it's not just the Pharisees. Okay? He's talking about religion. <laughs> this is what religion is. Religion is self-reliance. And it gives way to snobbery as well. So look at verses 10 through 12. He's going to tell the story. And he says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. How many of you guys can imagine that in here? There's somebody standing next to you and we're, just, we're praying we're praying, and somebody starts praying that about you. <laughs> That'd be, you'd be like, what? What is up with? So that's the kind of setting, though, this is. I, I want you to think corporately here. I, I believe that's the setting, because you've got a Pharisee, and then he's saying other people, so there's other people there, and then you got a tax collector. Okay? I, don't, I don't think these are just two guys, you know, one guy way at the back doing his personal devotion, just meeting with God and this Pharisee you know, up here saying this. I, I think it's a setting and there are people corporately there. That would kind of line up what we see in the New Testament with Acts 2, 42 as, as well. And so you have this setting, you have this religious Pharisee and he thinks he has it all figured out. He thought he was morally better than those around him. He even congratulates himself pretty, pretty big time and even brags about having not only kept the law, but even exceeding it. And in his prayer, he talks of himself being better than others in his own midst, and therefore even criticizes them. So religion gets it wrong on two fronts here. 
First, the idea that you're like, and I'm not, I'm not like everybody else. I, I don't have issues and sin like everybody else. Religion gets that wrong because we do. We all do. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's a level playing field in this world. All have sinned. All have sinned. This attitude right here, this religious attitude, okay? I mean, it, it literally, it, well, it's the judge. It's the judge, right? No fear of God. No fear of God. And no respect of man. It, it's the dragging of God and his authority through the mud is what this kind of attitude is. And so religion gets it wrong because we live in a broken world, right? A very broken world. We live in a sinful world. Sin has caused the brokenness that we see and we all deserve a, a judgment, a punishment because of our sin. And that's why God sent his son, right? He sent his son to die. He sent his son to, to raise again so that, so that we could have life and so that we would not live in brokenness and sinfulness and over judgment and, and, and in this state that this Pharisee and thinking that we haven't figured it out, that we would come to a place we don't have it figured out and, and we need Jesus. And so what did God do? God made a way. He made the way. He opened the door, the gate for us to know him and to have a relationship with God and to live the life that we were intended to live if we would simply trust in his son but we first must recognize we have a need and this guy did not and that's where religion fails second religion gets prayer wrong and it does here because what is prayer here it prayer is not for a show it's not it's not an accessory right it's not something you just put on it's not merely something we just do it's not just something we do so others will look at us and say, oh man, he's, he's pretty spiritual. No, prayer is our relationship with God. It is. That's why Paul, when you think about Paul in 1 Thessalonians, what does he say about prayer? He says, pray without ceasing. All right? We're to be a prayerful people. It's our relationship with God. It's us being dependent on him, and religion gets that completely wrong. But look at this guy. Look at verse 13. It says this. The tax collector, though, okay, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So they're drastically different picture of another who's present in this corporate worship setting. And it's this tax collector. He was one who, what? He was despised by the Jews? Because what were tax collectors seen as? As those who cheated their own people, out of money, by collecting taxes and trying to get even more out of them. They took advantage of people. That's how they were seen. They were even told that they couldn't even have a relationship uh, with God. And they would say, hey, you're not allowed to come into the temple. You're not allowed to be a part of this. And so they were looked down upon by the Pharisees, by the religious leaders. But here is one who is standing some distance away praying. But his posture is notable here. Because he is looking down in humility. Why? Because he fears God. If you go back to the first parable, you think about this judge. The idea of fearing God 
is to have this reverential awe of who God is. It also carries with it the idea, especially in this context and this culture, they would have said something like this, that, that he had no shaming before God. He had no shaming before God. You look at this guy, he is face down. He can't even look up to, to pray to heaven. Why? Because he feels that shame of what? Of, wow, this is God, this is holy God. And I'm going to cry out to him and pray. So there's this fear, there's this reverential awe of who God is and who I am as a sinner. And this guy recognizes this. And he stands in his presence and he starts beating on his chest. Why does he beat on his chest? What's in your chest? Your heart. And so he's agonizing. And why does he do that? Because his heart was the source of all his sin and evil. See, Matthew 15, 18 through 19 says, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. Okay, and so religion gets it wrong trying to fix from the outside, right? Pharisees got that wrong. Our world gets that wrong. What needs fixed is the heart. That's the problem. And this guy knew it very well. And so what does he do? He cries for mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is, is God's kindness. It's his, it's his love shown toward us in giving us what we do not deserve. Right? We deserve punishment. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. And yet God willingly chooses not to give that to us, to us. He lays that to the side and he shows us compassion and love. So what do we see right here with this guy? This guy gets it right because he recognizes he has a great need. We all do. We need the mercy of God. All of us need God's mercy. Are you dependent on that today? Or are you like the Pharisee? Are you trusting in what you can do, right? God says here through the story of the tax collector, say, listen, you need to cry out for mercy, for mercy. Why? See, his Pharisee thought he was righteous. Here's the deal. None of us are righteous. None of us are good on our own. So what do we need? We need help, and that's what God did. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this, that our Father took Jesus, who knew no sin, perfect, sinless God. And what did God do? He made him to become sin on our behalf. Why, for what reason? So that we could become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. That those who would believe in Jesus, God gets our sin, right? He takes our sin, Jesus takes our sin. He gets our sin. Martin Luther calls it this great exchange that happens. He takes our sin and what do we get? We get the righteousness of God, the free gift of righteousness. What that means is now we can stand right before a holy God, unashamed, right? But humbly grateful because of God's mercy. And that's what God gives to those who cry out for mercy, recognizing their great need and need for Jesus. And second, this guy gets prayer right, right? Unlike the first guy who just saw prayer as just something you do, this guy sees it differently. Prayer is central. It's not an accessory, it's necessary, right? And we are to be honest, and this guy's honest, he cries out, tells God his great need. It's necessary to our relationship. 
So what do we see here? We see great dependence. Great dependence. And to wrap this up, we'll close on this thought. I want you to think about this, because I, I think Luke does this. I think he puts all this together, these stories. He says here, I tell you this, man went to his house justified, this last guy, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves, those who are prideful, like this Pharisee, those who think, hey, listen, I've got it all figured out. I don't need God's help. I got this. That's a, that's, a, that's a very risky, dangerous place to be. And that's where that guy was. God says those who exalt themselves, who think they've got this on their own, I will humble. They will be humble. They'll be knocked down. Their nose may be up, it will eventually be in the dirt, right? Ultimately, what that means is those who lean on their own righteousness, on what they can do, eventually they will be humbled to hell, right? Okay? They will eventually be punished forever. So he's strong here. That's what it ultimately means. Then he says here, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Who humbles themselves here? The widow, right? Uh, but also the tax collector, we see that most importantly here, that he cries for mercy. He humbles himself, recognizes that he's a sinner. And he cries for the mercy of God. The one thing that can meet his need is God. And so he's humble. And what does God say he'll do? He exalts them, right? What, is that, what does that mean? That, that means he takes them from not having a relationship with him to now they do have a relationship with him. That's what this exalting is. You, you go from not knowing God and now you're delivered out of your sin and now you know God. You're, you're, now, you're once a slave trapped in your sin, now you're redeemed and you've been bought out of your sin by Christ and you get to know God. That's ultimately what it means. You go from not being part of the king's family being royalty, and now he raises you up and you're sons and daughters of the Most High King. That's what it means, and you will be exalted to that position of having a relationship with God. Man, that's big time. And you will know him forever. And so God wants us to take this lowly, humble position to recognize our great need for his mercy and be dependent on him. So much so, Luke does this. John, you can go ahead and start making your way up if you want, and we're gonna close on this stop, but Luke does this next, and I just want you to, to hear this as we close. He says, they were bringing even their babies to him, to Jesus, so that he would touch them, and in one place it says, pray over them, but when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking, saying, get these kids away, but Jesus called for them, saying, permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. For truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God is like a, chi- like a child, will not enter it at all. You see, disciples didn't want Jesus to be distracted by the work he had to do. That's what rabbis and teachers, they, they thought, you know, get, let the kids go and play. They've got more important business. But here's what Jesus says. He says, no, let them come. Bring the babies, bring the little kids, right? I'll hang out, I'll play with them, man. I'll pray over them, I'll bless them. Jesus wanted the kids to 
come. And then he makes this point. He says, listen, these children right here, they're an example. They're an example. For such as these belongs to the kingdom. He wasn't saying that these kids, right, before him right there that day automatically had salvation. He wasn't saying that, okay? But what he's saying is, is they're an illustration to what Luke is trying to make here. Think about a baby, right? Some of you guys have some small ones, some infants. How dependent are they on you as their parent? Big time. Big time. What can they do, right? For food, for clothing, to be taken to place to place, to be changed. I mean, you name it. And God says, that's the kind of dependence those who belong to the kingdom are to have. That kind of faith. That kind of faith. And so today, will he find that kind of faith? Will he find that kind of faith in here? I, I pray that we would have this childlike faith, this dependent type faith. Where we're persistent like the widow. That we're honest and we cry out for mercy like the tax collector. That we're like the children that came to him. That we're dependent on him. Let's pray.